1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Sarah, and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to Sunlight Financial, second quarter 2021 financial results conference call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. The host of the call is Yaneve Bitten, Vice President, Head of Investor Relations and Capital Markets. Mr. Bitten, please go ahead.
2: Thank you, Sarah, and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Sun Life's earnings call for the second quarter of 2021. Our earnings release and the slides for today's call are available on the investor relations section of our website at sunlight.com. We will begin today's remarks with a message from Dean Connor, our chief executive officer. We'll then turn it to Kevin Strain, president and incoming CEO, for highlights from the second quarter. Following Kevin's remarks, Manjit Singh. Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer will present the financial results for the quarter. After their prepared remarks, we will move to the question and answer portion of the call. Other members of management will also be available to answer your questions this afternoon. Turning to slide two, I draw your attention to the cautionary language regarding the use of forward-looking statements and non-IFRS financial measures, which form part of today's remarks. As noted in the slides, forward-looking statements may be rendered inaccurate by subsequent events. And with that, I'll now turn things over to Dean.
3: Thanks, Yaniv, and good afternoon, everyone. As you know, this is my last quarterly earnings call, and I have just a few comments before turning it over to Kevin. It has been the privilege of a lifetime to lead Sun Life for the past nearly 10 years. This is such a great business. We have a noble purpose, helping clients achieve lifetime financial security and live healthier lives. We've put clients in the center of everything we do, and that, plus our purpose, has created a magnetic pull for talented employees and advisors who want to have an impact, who want to grow their careers, and be part of a winning team. It's that talent and culture that has allowed us to execute effectively on our four-pillar strategy. I do want to thank our investors who have supported Sun Life's growth strategy and this management team over time. We have benefited from your many questions and suggestions and we've always imagined that you were in the room alongside us as we made critical decisions around the allocation of your capital. I also want to thank the many sell-side professionals who have followed Sun Life and who have invested the time to understand our story and our future prospects. The company will be in great hands with a strong and experienced executive team and with Kevin Strain at the helm. Kevin's skills, character, and his experience leading businesses in Canada and Asia, and more recently as our CFO, have uniquely equipped him to lead Sun Life onwards to future success. And with that, I'll now turn the call over to Kevin.
4: Thanks, Thanks, Dean, and good afternoon, everyone. Over the past 10 years, Dean has built a strong foundation for Sun Life, underpinned by our four-pillar strategy and our focus on clients, while nurturing a strong culture where our people can thrive. Dean is leaving behind a lasting legacy at Sun Life, Under Dean's leadership, the company has made key strategic decisions that drove top quartile returns for our shareholders, with annualized total shareholder returns of over 18% during his tenure. On behalf of our employees, advisors, and partners around the world, I want to thank Dean for his guidance, inspiration, and leadership over the past 15 years he's been with SunLife. Dean, you are retiring from SunLife on a high note, and I know you will continue to follow the company closely and will be cheering us on. We wish you the very best. Turn to slide five for the highlights from the second quarter. Reported net income of $900 million was up $381 million. Underlying net income and earnings per share increased 19% from the prior year, reflecting strong growth across our businesses, driven by investments in our people and technology as we continue to emerge from pandemic conditions. We also generated a strong underlying return on equity of 16% in the second quarter. With a LICAT ratio of 147% at SLF, we continue to have a strong capital position which provides flexibility and the opportunity for capital deployment. While we've been operating and executing in a challenging environment over the past 18 months, we've maintained a relentless focus on our purpose of helping our clients achieve lifetime financial security and live healthier lives. We continue to invest in ways to make it easier for clients to do business with us. In June, we announced that clients in Canada between the ages of 18 to 40 can now qualify for up to $5 million in life insurance coverage without the need for lab exams. This means that approximately 75% of clients may not require lab exams going forward. We are transforming our underwriting processes through data and analytics using predictive models to replace previously required health tests. At a time when health and financial security have never been more important, we are making life and health insurance more accessible than ever before for our clients. In Asia, we have made substantial investments in our technology, tools, and products. For example, in Hong Kong, our mandatory provident fund offering continues to outperform the market. We are now ranked first in net inflows and third in assets under management based on second quarter results. We are adding new and innovative capabilities to our group businesses in the U.S. On July 1st, we completed our acquisition of Pinnacle Care, a leading U.S. healthcare navigation and medical intelligence provider, which is now part of our U.S. stop-loss and health business. Sun Life and Pinnacle Care create a new dynamic that will improve care, outcomes, and costs for our clients. Pinnacle Care's health advisors help members navigate the complex U.S. healthcare landscape to identify the best possible treatment options for their unique conditions, leading to better client health outcomes. Sustainability continues to be a strategic priority for Sun Life. Our commitment also includes sustainable investing. Recently, MFS and Infrared Capital, our infrastructure manager in SLC management, joined the Net Zero Asset Manager Alliance. In Q2, we also made several investments across our private fixed income portfolio that align to our sustainable investing goals and, more importantly, demonstrate the positive impact we can have on society. These include sustainability-linked financing to a North American shipping company that is reducing the carbon intensity of its fleet annually while keeping in line with ambitious quantifiable decarbonization targets. We also invested in green bonds where proceeds will be used to improve the efficiency of certain buildings. These are examples of how we continue to incorporate sustainability into our investment decisions. In the second quarter, wealth sales and asset management gross flows were up 8% from prior year on a constant currency basis, driven by strong growth sales at SLC management and higher wealth sales in Asia and Canada. In Q2, 96%, 61%, and 93% of MFS U- US retail fund assets ranked in the top half of their Morningstar categories based on 10, five, and three-year performance respectively. Moving to digital highlights on slide six, We look at how digital is helping us deliver on our purpose of helping clients achieve lifetime financial security and live healthier lives. In Canada, our digital coach, Ella, continues to connect with our clients, helping them save for their future and ensure protection of their loved ones. In the first half of the year, Ella's nudges drove nearly $500 million of wealth deposits and the sale of over $650 million in life insurance coverage for our clients. In the US, we are helping clients get the coverage they need to new offerings and digital capabilities. An example of this is the expansion of our online dental health center capabilities, which enable clients to receive dental estimates and access advice virtually from leading dentists. We also continue to advance digital in Asia. In the second quarter, 74% of new insurance applications were submitted digitally, an increase of 41 percentage points over Q2 last year. Stepping back, we're pleased with the results Sun life achieved in the first half of the year we've delivered double-digit earnings growth, strong ROE, and maintained a solid balance sheet that provides us with significant flexibility. As some parts of the world have slowly started to open up, we've received many questions about our future of work status. Last month, we outlined our guiding principles for our employees for the post-pandemic future of work. This includes supporting flexible work styles revolving around our client and business needs. In our offices, we're committed to providing safe and healthy working environments that are designed to spark collaboration, productivity, and creativity. We want the office to be a magnet for employees at times when face-to-face collaboration is more effective and we're making investments in our office spaces to enable this. And whether employees are working from home or in the office, we're committed to providing them with a great, seamless work experience with the tools, technology, and support they need to do their jobs. Our approach to a hybrid working model supports our goal to attract and retain talent and accelerates our ambition to be one of the best insurance and asset management companies in the world. On a personal note, I'm looking forward to taking on my new role as CEO. I'm committed to building on Sun Life's success and keeping our clients at the center of everything we do, while remaining focused on our key strategic priorities, including continuing to push and support our digital innovation and transformation making sustainability a key part of our strategy across insurance and asset management, leveraging our asset management strength, fostering a diverse, equitable, and inclusive workplace, and above all, nurturing our strong, caring, optimistic Sun Life culture where employees can develop and thrive. With that, I will now turn the call over to Manjit
5: who will take us through our financial results. Thank you, Kevin, and good afternoon, everyone. I also want to take a moment to recognize Dean's tremendous contributions during his tenure as CEO and wish him all the very best. Let's turn to slide eight for an overview of our second quarter results. Sun Life delivered good results with strong momentum across all our business fillers. Reported net income of $900 million was up 73% from the prior year, reflecting a recovery of market-related impacts as well as higher underlying net income. Underlying net income of 883 million was up 144 million or 19% from the prior year driven by business growth, favorable credit experience, and a more normalized effective tax rate for the current quarter. These factors are partially offset by unfavorable foreign currency translation, lower investing activity gains, and higher incentive compensation reflecting strong year-to-date performance across all of our businesses. Q2 underlying earnings per share were $1.50, and an underlying return on equity was 16%. Assets under management climbed to nearly $1.4 trillion, reflecting market value growth and strong net flows at SLC management. For the first half of 2021, our wealth and asset management businesses generated $14 billion of net inflows, compared to $8 billion in the first half of 2020. Book value per share was up 2% from the prior year, reflecting strong reported net income growth, mostly offset by foreign currency translation. Excluding impacts and other comprehensive income, book value per share increased 10% over the prior year. Our balance sheet position remains strong. Q2 Likert ratios of 147% at SLF and 125% at SLA were up six percentage points and one percentage point respectively from the prior quarter. The main driver of the increase at SLF was the issuance of one billion of limited recourse capital notes, which added approximately five percentage points of LICAT. The issuance also increased holding company cash to 3.2 billion and the financial leverage ratio ended the quarter at 24.7%. Subject to regulatory approval, our intention is to redeem two series of fixed rate preferred shares totaling $725 million at the end of the third quarter. Upon redemption, SLF's Likert ratio will decline by approximately three percentage points and the financial leverage ratio will decline by approximately 2%. Slide nine highlights the performance of our business groups. Given the significant impact of foreign currency translation on our year-over-year results, we have also provided earnings growth in constant currency on this slide. Canada's reported net income of $404 million in Q2 was up $287 million over the prior year, driven by favorable market-related impacts. Underlying net income of $290 million increased $9 million, reflecting continued business growth in insurance and wealth management, as well as favorable credit experience. This was partially offset by a lower contribution from investment investing activities as the prior year included gains related to investments initiated while credit spreads were more favorable. The U.S. reported net income of 157 million was up 39 million versus the prior year, reflecting higher underlying net income. Underlying net income of 165 million was up 42 million or 51% on a constant currency basis driven by favorable mortality, morbidity, and credit experience as well as higher investing activity gains. This was partially offset by unfavorable expense experience from higher incentive compensation costs, reflecting strong results in the first half of 2021. The U.S. Group benefits business achieved an after-tax margin of 8.5% on a trailing 12-month basis up from 7.5% in the prior year. Asset management reported net income was $221 million down 2 million from the prior year. This reflects fair value adjustments on MFS share-based awards and the impact of a UK tax rate change in SLC management, largely offset by underlying net income growth. Underlying net income for MFS of 286 million was up 41% on a constant currency basis driven by strong average net asset growth, partially offset by higher variable compensation expenses. MFS ended the quarter with a pre-tax net operating margin of 39%. SLC management generated underlying net income of 25 million, which was down from the prior year due to lower performance fees, partially offset by contributions from the infrared and crescent acquisitions. In Asia, Q2 reported net income was 143 million, up 17 million year over year. This was driven by improved market-related impacts partially offset by unfavorable foreign currency translation. Underlying net income of $152 million was up 17% in constant currency, driven by business growth and favorable credit experience. This was partially offset by higher compensation cost and unfavorable mortality experience in the India joint venture. Corporates reported net loss of $25 million improved from the prior year, driven by higher net tax recoveries in the quarter, Partially offset by unfavorable expense experience and lower seed investment gains. Slide 10 provides an overview of our sources of earnings. Ex- expected profit increased 9% from the prior year. Excluding the asset management pillar and the impact of currency, expected profit was up 7%, driven by business growth in Canada and Asia. New business gains increased by 21 million over the prior year, reflecting strong sales growth in Asia, along with robust sales growth in individual insurance in Canada. Experience gains of 99 million were primarily driven by market-related impacts. Earnings on surplus of 118 million declined 37 million from the prior year, which included higher seed gains. Turning to slide 11, which outlines insurance and wealth sales on a constant currency basis. Individual insurance sales were up 52%, driven by higher participating policy sales in Canada and an increase in sales across most markets in Asia. While sales in Asia have improved, we are seeing renewed lockdowns in some countries as a result of new variants. We are working closely with our local teams to monitor the situation. The slight decline in group benefit sales was driven by lower stop-loss sales in the U.S. and flat sales Growth in Canada as you continue to see fewer large cases coming to market in the current environment. Wealth sales increased 63% on a constant currency basis compared to the prior year. In Canada, sales increased 47%, reflecting higher individual wealth and group retirement services sales. Asia sales increased by 81%, reflecting growth in mutual fund sales in India, money market sales in the Philippines and the Hong Kong pension business, where we are now the market leader in net inflows. Asset management gross flows increased 3% year-over-year, year, driven by higher gross flows in SLC management, partially offset by lower sales in MFS. MFS ended the quarter with U.S. $5.6 billion in outflows, reflecting continued inflows in retail, which were more than offset by institutional outflows. SLC management had strong net inflows of $7.6 billion, which will generate good fee income in the coming quarters. Value of new business generated in the second quarter was $284 million up 46% in constant currency compared to the prior year driven by strong sales in Asia and Canada. Turning to slide 12, operating expenses were up 15% from the prior year. Excluding the impact of currency, run rate expenses from acquisitions and fair value adjustments, expenses were up 17%. Eight percentage points of this increase was driven by higher incentive compensation and sales-related costs in our asset management businesses, reflecting strong revenue growth. Another eight, percent, another eight percentage points was driven by higher distribution costs in Canada and Asia, reflecting robust sales growth, as well as a higher accrual for our annual incentive compensation plan the increase in the annual incentive compensation plan accrual reflects strong business performance in the first half of the year versus weaker year-to-day performance in the prior year, which included the impact from the onset of the pandemic. The remaining 1% increase was attributable to continued investment in our business, partially offset by savings from our focus on disciplined expense management. To conclude, Q2 was another good quarter, highlighting the strength of some Life's balanced set of businesses which operated attractive markets with significant growth opportunities. While the pandemic has resulted in a challenging operating environment, we are pleased with the resiliency and strength our businesses have demonstrated. And we're continuing to invest in initiatives to further enhance our client experience, digital capabilities that transform the way we work, and business opportunities to drive future growth. Now, I'll hand the call back to Need for Q&A.
2: Thank you, Manjit. To help ensure that all of our participants have an opportunity to ask questions this afternoon, I would ask you to limit yourselves to one or two questions and then re-queue with any additional questions. I will now ask Sarah to pull the participants.
1: Thank you. To ask a question, you will need to press star then one on your telephone. To withdraw your question, please press the pound key. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Our first question comes from the line of Humphrey Lee with Dowling & Partners.
0: Your line is now open. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
6: Good afternoon, and thank you for taking my questions. And before I ask the question, I do want to extend my congratulations to Dean for your retirement. It's been a pleasure working with you. Uh, My first question is related to uh, the U.S. Group benefits business. Uh, one of the health insurers in the U.S. has talked about rising medical costs, uh, on earnings call today. Uh, I know the topic of medical inflation is not new, but given the, the broader inflation concerns, how do you see inflation affecting the stop loss, uh, stop loss business? Um, uh, generally, what have you been, uh, your observations so far and have you looked at how to address that?
7: Good afternoon, Humphrey. It's Dan Fishbein. Thanks for the question. Um, You know, generally, when we look at medical inflation in the stop-loss business, uh, we're able to predict that in advance and build that into our rates. And actually, that's been uh, one of the drivers of the growth in premiums that we have in the business. But at the same time, there are obviously somewhat unusual effects from the COVID pandemic. What we're seeing in our book of business so far is one of the reasons why we have lower morbidity in that business this year is likely some delays in treatment due to the pandemic. And that plays out in later periods in lower stop-loss claims. Now that's not the only reason we're seeing favorable results. Uh, The favorable morbidity is obviously also related to good performance in our underwriting and pricing. Uh, We do have some concern about delayed treatment, obviously, on behalf of our members, and that's actually one of the ways that we can use our new Pinnacle Care acquisition to help guide people to the right care at the right time. But we would expect that in subsequent periods we may see some, uh, you know, increased utilization as compared to the uh, depressed level of utilization that we've seen the past couple of quarters.
6: Yeah, that's more on the dependent of demand or, or kind of normalization of of, of, of activities. Uh, but given some of the kind of the, the pricing dynamic is going on, have you seen any kind of uh, difference or, or the deviation of the medical cost inflation uh, from what you're seeing versus uh, what you have in your pricing uh, assumptions?
7: Not at this point. Again, actually, we're seeing quite the opposite uh, because of you know, lower care or delayed care. Uh, but as far as the overall trend, there's always medical inflation. That's been a part of, uh, medical care in the U.S., uh, for, for a very long time. Uh, and we always have a forecast, which we work with outside actuarial firms to confirm as to what medical inflation will be and build that into our pricing. Uh, so at this point, beyond some of the anomalous impacts related to the pandemic, uh, we're not seeing anything that would suggest, for example, a substantial increase in the level of medical inflation.
6: Understood. Um, my second question is related to the strong SLC. Uh, I think this is the second quarter in a row that you have uh, secure large capital commitments that driving higher net. Uh, since these flows haven't been really funded, like how should we think about the lead time? Getting these inflows versus turning them into fee earnings assets that flow through your earnings.
8: Uh, Humphrey, this is Steve Peacher. Thanks for that question. Um, you're right to point out that we've had a, a couple uh, strong quarters of flows, and I think importantly, it reflects uh, capital raising across the broad platform at SLC. So we're we're very pleased by that. And and when we raise, and that capital comes in different forms. Sometimes, and this was a, a quarter where that was reflected. Uh, that money comes into closed-in funds where investors commit uh, capital and then we invest that over the coming quarters. Sometimes it comes from, you know, winning a new separately managed account that would be funded immediately. Um, When we get money that's committed to a closed-in vehicle, like an alternative credit fund or a new real estate fund, there's usually an investment period of uh, two to three years to get that money invested. It often gets uh, invested much more quickly than that. So it depends on the type of commitment we get, but but, uh, if it's not an immediate flow, which sometimes it is, you can usually expect that that money will be invested and turned into fee-paying AUM over the the coming year or two. Um, We do have some funds where we get paid fees on committed capital even before we've invested it, uh, but I would say that's more the exception than the norm.
6: Got it. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Our next question comes from a line of Minnie Grauman with Scotiabank. Your line is now open.
9: Hi, good afternoon. And um, I want to, first off, uh, Dean, wish you best of luck in your new chapter, and I hope you get to golf more. Uh, in terms of questions, uh just want to add, revisit the subject of return of capital. And uh, first off, uh, from the, the dividend perspective, you're running uh, – at a payout ratio below your target range, and I'm wondering, when the green light finally comes, where do you want to be? Do you want to be at the midpoint, uh, and and how fast do you think uh, you want to get there?
4: Hey, many, it's uh, it's Kevin. Thanks for your question on the dividend. You know, we remain committed to paying out a uh, dividend in the 40 to 50 percent of earnings range that we've talked about in, in the past, and getting to there once the restrictions are lifted, as, as you've noted, you know, our intention would be to, to do like we, we, we were uh, before, that earnings would grow, uh, dividends would grow alongside of earnings in sort of the 8 to 10%, which gives the investors kind of a, a sense of what they can expect from the, from the dividend so that it's sustainable and, and gives a, a sort of good growth perspective. So we're still looking at the 40 to 50% range.
9: So, just to understand you correctly, there is—it's uh, reasonable to assume that you're going to catch up and get into that range before growing more in line with with uh, sort of regular earnings growth. Is that? Yeah, what yeah, that's
4: that, that's right. That's how you should think about it. We we would more more quickly get into the range, and then we would go back to sort of that sustainable eight to ten percent growth alongside earnings.
9: And then, just on on the buyback front. Uh, a lot of uh, excess capital there, definitely capacity to do buybacks once they're allowed. If I look back uh, pre-pandemic, you know, 2018, 2019, you were buying back about uh, 2%. Is it reasonable to, to assume that you could buy back more than that? Uh, is that something uh, you're contemplating at this stage uh, uh, in terms of uh, a larger buyback uh, than, than what we saw pre-pandemic? You
4: know, it's Kevin again. Our, our, our priority has always been on deploying capital for, for growth, whether that be organic growth and, and investing in the business or or through M&A. When we look at the pipeline and uh, we see that we have excess um, over what we believe we would need, we make that decision in terms of the buyback. So it's it really dependent on where we are. Um, in terms of organic growth opportunities, we see and investments we can make, but also uh, in terms of M and A, that that's there. In terms of opportunities, I, I will say that we're we're disciplined around how we how we use the capital, and, and by you know discipline, I mean we're, we we look at our MTOs, and as we deploy capital, we want it to support all of our MTOs. It should support earnings growth, should support uh, our ROE and its targets, and it should support cash. Back so so we we will deploy capital based on the same discipline that we've uh, we've had in the past.
1: Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Tom McKinnon with BMO Capital. Your line is now open.
10: Yeah. Thanks very much, and good afternoon. Just want to offer my congratulations to Dean too. Not only in a great uh, career, fun life, but uh, you know, a great career at Mercer as well and as a uh, sort of very rewarding uh, professional life and I uh, hope you enjoy all the best uh, that comes to you in the ensuing years. So um, uh, I guess maybe the first question would be for Dan. Uh, just with respect to stop-loss sales, um, this seems to be the lowest second quarter we've seen in a while. Maybe you can comment on what you're seeing out there in the marketplace. Is there pricing pressure? Um, Any commentary around that? And I have a follow-up.
7: Yes, uh, thanks. This is Dan. Um, We're definitely seeing some increase in competitive pricing in the stop-loss business. There's no question about that. You know, it's our belief that some of this is related to the fact that probably most stop-loss carriers are seeing favorable experience, maybe not to the degree we are. But they're seeing favorable experience right now, at least partially due to delays in care. And that may be leading to some competitors being more aggressive on pricing, particularly as they're trying to make up for misses on sales, uh, especially uh, last year. Uh, So we are seeing that. That's the major driver for why our sales are down somewhat. Now, our sales are still very high. We're running around – in the quarter, we were at about 85% of the prior year quarter, and that still puts us uh, well in the lead amongst independent stop-loss carriers uh, well ahead of anybody else. But we are largely sticking to our guns on pricing and the margins that we build into pricing. Uh, So we will uh, accept a little bit lower close ratio if necessary, uh, rather than sacrificing uh, future margins.
10: Okay, and then... As a follow-up, just with respect to the expense experience losses in the quarter, uh, traditionally Sun Life would kind of roll along for the first three quarters of a year um, with not much activity in terms of expense experience and then book some losses as a sort of a catch-up in the fourth quarter, maybe to reflect uh, incentive comp and uh, other spends. Uh, how should we be looking at this uh, cadence going forward? Is this uh, uh, the loss that we took in this quarter, is that a bit of a catch up or should we, uh, every time we see some like stock price go up, uh, we should we be looking for a negative in that expense experience line? Uh-
5: Good afternoon, Tom. It's Manjit. I'll take that question. So the expense experience you saw was largely related, as I mentioned in my remarks, to, uh, to an accrual we've made on the incentive uh, compensation plan. As disclosed in our, um, in our proxy circular, the key drivers on that plan are really our underlying earnings, our reported earnings, v and D and various client-related metrics. And we constantly take a look at how we're performing against the targets that we were established. So as you saw, this quarter we performed extremely well alongside all those measures, and the accrual really reflects that strength in performance.
10: And it, it, is that the strength in performance over what time frame? Is that just over for, uh,
5: the quarter? It's a year-to-date view.
10: And so you hadn't made any adjustments in the last 12 months up until this time frame? No,
5: it was a year-to-date fiscal, so it would have been for the first oh, six year, months oh, of yeah, the year.
10: Year-to-date fiscal. So if yeah. we saw similar kind of growth, in uh, um, in six months of underlying earnings in D&B, would we expect a similar kind of uh, uh, expense experience loss?
5: Well, it's, we have an annual target, uh, Tom, so we would look at how we're trending on the annual target and what that payout would suggest relative to what we've accrued year-to-date and make any adjustments that are required. Okay.
10: And... Um, so you're just going to revisit this more on a quarterly basis as opposed to, uh, um, you know.
5: Yeah, we think that's more appropriate because it really then matches up the performance in the quarter against the expense in the quarter. Tom, it's it's Kevin Strain. I just note that the three
4: big elements of our annual incentive pay are reported earnings, underlying earnings, and VNB. and b And you can see that uh, reported earnings, uh, uh, there's a big jump up this year, uh, with the economic conditions, and so that that starts to come through as do the other elements. So that gives you a sense of what the three most important sort of elements are. The fourth one is client performance, and, and uh, that's also on an annual basis. Okay, thanks so much.
1: Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Doug Young with Desjardins Capital Markets. Your line is now open.
11: Uh, good afternoon. Uh, maybe just starting, Dan. Back to yourself on the U.S. group side, and you know we've seen a steady improvement in in the under uh, in the reported earnings. And you know your LTM after tax profit margin is eight and a half percent. And you talked a bit about you know things uh, eventually normalizing. And how, how like over what time frame should we think about you know claims trends starting to normalize and and can you remind us, like, where does this after-tax profit margin likely settle down, and if you can kind of maybe address it on the employee benefit and the stop-loss side?
7: Well, thanks. As, as you know, our target margin is 7% or greater, and as you pointed out, we're now at 8.5%, so, you know, well above that number. There are different factors pointing in different directions, which makes it very hard to, to predict exactly how that will play out over what periods of time uh, in the future. So I'll just quickly go through what some of the biggest factors are. On mortality, we obviously, over the past 16 months, have seen significantly elevated group life mortality. That did moderate in the second quarter, although we certainly have some concern about that, you know, maybe starting to come back with the Delta variant. We continue to see elevated short-term disability claims uh, directly related to covid uh, the good news is our long-term disability experience so far has been relatively benign in line with expectations. Dental claims this quarter were... Um in line with normal expectations, but much higher than the same quarter last year, because as you'll recall, last year at this time, dental offices were closed, so there was very little dental utilization. And then of course, there's the stop loss component of this as well, which, you know, I described a little earlier, but has been very favorable. Uh, we believe the majority of that favorability is due to delays in care related to COVID. But certainly not all of it. There's underlying favorability in our performance uh, that should continue. So as to how exactly all of those factors play out over what period of time, it, it's it's not really possible to to predict that. Uh, we would say we're confident of being able to remain at, you know at or above the seven percent target. Uh, we still still feel good about that target.
11: Okay, so we should expect the gravitation over the, how, whatever time frame back towards the seven percent for this business, essentially,
7: and that's where well, you're Well, I mean, not business, necessarily exactly those words, <laughs> but um, hmm. because there are different factors that go in different directions. Sure. So, for example, we may see lower mortality over the next several quarters as COVID hopefully wanes, uh, and um, you know we should continue to see some favorability in stop loss. So it's a little bit hard to say exactly where that will settle out.
11: Sure. No, totally understand. And then just on MFS, you know, obviously the institutional net outflows were were elevated. Can you maybe break down, you know, what you're hearing from your clients? That what what drove that ele- elevated net outflows? Um, is there a specific mandate, specific rationale for, for money coming out? Just hoping to get a little color on that. Thank you.
12: Yeah. Good afternoon. Um, This is Mike. Uh, Yeah, the majority of the well, all of the outflows were institutional, but represented by just a few outflows um, in the quarter, and maybe a couple things on the institutional insurance side. The first is the entire book is uh, almost entirely equity based, and so as market makes make all new time highs you get de-risked in pension plans you get rebalanced to an asset allocation and other plans and so that's just generally a headwind at market highs um, and then the second as to some of the larger redemptions that we saw in the quarter it was really you know moved to passive rebalancing of plans and you know it was nothing out of the ordinary other than uh, just a couple of really large plans in the quarter
11: okay thanks and uh, all the best in retirement team thanks
1: Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of David Motimaden with Evercore ISI. Your line is now open.
13: Hi. Thanks. Uh, good afternoon. And uh, I'd like to echo uh, Dean, uh, congrats on the retirement and uh, stellar career. Um, so I guess uh, my, my first question is for, um, is for Dan, uh, just on the stop loss experience and on the lower utilization. Um, I'm wondering if you, could, if you could just tell us if you're seeing signs of utilization picking up, um, you know, as things kind of reopen and maybe just quantify how much of a benefit that was in the quarter.
7: David, it's, it, you know, we see utilization well after it occurs uh, because what a stop-loss claim obviously is is a, a very severe claim. So it takes a while until a person has had that level of care and, and severity of illness until that threshold is reached and then ultimately until the claim is filed. So there's a pretty long delay uh, in when we would see that. What I can tell you, we, we've obviously done a lot of analysis of this, and we are also looking at external sources, just what's doing in general. And hospital care has returned close to normal over the past couple of nor- uh, quarters, outside of COVID, of course, but not completely back to normal. And then in our own experience, you know, as you see in the second quarter, uh, we've continued to see quite a bit of favorability, which, as I said, uh, you know, we think is more than half due to delays in care, but not entirely due to, the, to that either. Uh, so at least through the end of the second quarter, we were continuing to see, uh, you know, very favorable uh, morbidity, and at least as of that point, we hadn't started to see that uh, wane at all.
13: Got it. And, and some of the leading indicators that, that you are tracking would suggest that that, that is the continuing trend, is, is what it sounds like.
7: Well, all I can comment on is what we've seen through the end of the second quarter, uh, you know, but, and, and that has continued to be quite favorable. Uh, we would expect, uh, inevitably, that, you know, care will catch up and people will catch up with, with getting care and getting diagnosis. Uh, but at least through the end of the quarter we hadn't really seen that yet.
13: Got it. Okay. That's helpful. Thanks. Um and then uh maybe just shifting gears um a, a question uh for Leo. Um I guess maybe could you just um you know, wanted to just touch on individual insurance sales in Hong Kong. Um you know, I think things have started to open up there, um, and I'm just wondering if we've started to see the pipeline uh, start to build back up on the on the hub side.
14: Hi, good afternoon, uh, David. Uh, it's Leo here. Thank you for your question. Um, so what uh, you'll have seen in Q2 in terms of uh, international hub sales, Um, which uh, is uh, our Hong Kong uh, local business, our Hong Kong high net worth business, and then our Bermuda high net worth business, and then um, uh, newly Singapore. Uh, What you'll have seen is um, a decrease in sales overall in Hong Kong uh, last quarter. Um, That is uh, really composed of two things. First is continued strong sales on the agency side. Uh, as a result of our focus on local markets um, and uh, continued strong demand uh, locally, uh, and uh, a decline in sales uh, in the broker and high-net-worth space. That was offset by a very strong quarter in high-net-worth sales in uh, in international in Bermuda. And so the way you should think about this is um, – uh, is really overall, and you know, this is really the, the rationale for us bringing together uh, international hubs and all of our high net worth businesses where the brokers um, are really dealing with international clients, high net worth, ultra high net worth clients, um, where um, location is somewhat fungible and um, the brokers will place the business in the most um, effective uh, location at any given point in time. And so what we saw there uh, in Q2 is that uh, travel restrictions continue to actually be quite uh, strong uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, Over the course of uh, Q2, you were facing three-week quarantine coming into Hong Kong and only for residents of Hong Kong. Uh, And so that uh, has made um, high-net-worth sales continuing to be quite difficult. Um, But uh, in contrast, uh, we saw strong demand um, through our offshore business um, uh, in uh, In the second quarter, um, the other thing that happened for us in international is, um, uh, and we've been doing this across the business. We're constantly uh, repricing the business uh, based on market conditions and redesigning um, uh, the products. And um, in uh, Q two, um, uh, specifically, we launched a new product in uh, international and uh, are closing uh, an existing one, um, and so given the long nature of the pipeline in, uh, in high net worth, you've got six to 12 months um, uh, sales cycle, um, uh, our brokers who had business that was in the pipeline uh, worked hard to get all of these policies issued before uh, the end of this product, and so that brought forward Um, some of our uh, Q3 and Q4 sales into Q2. So that that explains the strong uh, international sales in Q2. So overall, very strong sales in high net worth, Um, um, uh, less in Hong Kong, more in international. Going forward, uh, we do continue to have restrictions uh, in terms of travel into Hong Kong. So uh, that should continue to affect um, uh, the Hong Kong-specific business. Um uh, We continue to have travel restrictions globally and to Singapore and so on, and so uh, we we do see continued headwinds, but we also see brokers uh, working very proactively uh, working on their overall pipelines and and there continues to be demand um, as a result of growing wealth um, and growing need for protection among um, high network clients got it
13: and and um, to be to be clear I guess the the Hong Kong – um, you know, the high net worth sales there in Hong Kong, are those, it sounds like those are mainly offshore sales, is that correct? There isn't really a domestic uh, component there? Uh, there is a domestic uh, component uh, to those sales,
14: but um, they're a smaller part of the total, so you also have to rely on um, uh, on international as well, yeah. Okay, got it, you thank you. You have to rely on people being able to come into the, 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 the market.
13: Yeah, makes sense. Okay, thank you.
1: Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Gabriel DeShane with National Bank Financial. Your line is now open.
15: Hey, good afternoon. And, uh, Dean, uh, congratulations on the uh, retirement and uh, great uh, run at the helm of Sunlight Life. And uh, my two cents, gentleman farmer, Trump's uh, you know, golfing. Uh, but my question is about the group business. I know we've had a lot of uh, discussion there already, uh, put some takes of uh, some of the trends that are uh, mostly headwinds lately. I'm wondering you know, if we can keep it simple, both in Canada and the U.S., over, let's say 2022, as utilization rates start to move higher, uh, is profit growth going to be positive or flat or maybe negative in, in some of these markets? If you can just give me a very directional commentary.
16: So, Gabriel, you, you want both Canada and US, or?
15: Yes, please, Jacques. Okay. And, uh, merci, ben.
16: merci pour ta question. I'll go first, uh, if that's okay, and then I'll pass it on to Dan. So, the you know we've said this before in the GB market, if in Canada at the moment. Uh, COVID is impacting the activity, particularly, Gabriel at the large employer level, so what we call the national accounts. And in fact, if you were to split our portfolio between large, medium, and small, what you'd find is that you know, we're actually getting pretty good sales in small and medium, but you know the, the sales, there's low activity at the larger end. And one of the reasons for that, by the way, Gabriel, is that at the larger end, Unlike at the small and medium where you have more standard off-the-shelf type of plans, the large employers tend to have complex and customized plans. And so what's happening now is that it's more difficult and they don't want to create the level of disruption in the middle of COVID. I don't have a crystal ball for 2022, but I would expect that as we get past the pandemic, uh, we'll, see, we'll start seeing activity rise again.
15: Uh, Earnings, I'm Um, talking about, not not, not sales.
16: Yeah, well, look, uh, earnings, I would say uh, things are, for Canada, things are looking pretty good, as you can see. One of the things I'm particularly pleased about is, you know, we've got 13% expected profit growth across the business. Uh, That's, by the way, uh, Gabrielle, across all four of our business units, we're seeing expected profit growth. And as you know, that speaks to the more fundamental of the business. There was a question to Dan a bit earlier about pricing. One of the things in Canada that we've been very disciplined on and trying not to get into what I would call a race to the bottom. So we've been pretty disciplined on pricing and taking on business uh, with the view of not just growing the top line but growing the bottom line. So I, in terms of the earnings power, you, you know, the continuation of the strong earnings power in Canada is uh, is what we expect. And
7: and this is Dan. I'll address that for the U.S. So as I mentioned earlier, healthcare utilization has different effects on different products within our business group. Uh, Maybe the two that are are most relevant to healthcare utilization are dental and stop loss. Dental utilization is largely back to normal. Uh, So, you know, and we would expect that to continue. Uh, And then, uh, healthcare utilization obviously affects our stop loss business, and that's where there is some concern about delays in care, uh, and both, you know, for the well-being of our members, and then what that could suggest as, as hopefully those delays, uh, go away. So we would expect some increase in utilization, uh, in the stop loss business, certainly. But as to, as I mentioned before, exactly how that plays out is very difficult to predict. Uh, similar to what Jacques described, also, we do price for increased utilization, and in fact, it is one of the drivers of premium growth in these businesses.
15: Yeah, but I think you talked about that uh, uh, utilization the, uh, for diagnostics and cancer checkups and stuff like that on the last call, and that's a concern. Is that maybe something that gets pushed back to 2023? I mean, it's tough to predict these things, but... Uh, it's out there on the horizon, right?
7: Yeah, it, it, as I said, it's it's tough to impossible to predict, but we are tracking different diagnoses categories very carefully, and we do see some continued delays uh, in the healthcare system in general in cancer diagnosis. Uh, so that does concern us uh, again, but largely for the well-being of our members, but also mm-hmm. there could be some impact in our results in the future.
15: All right. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your summer, everyone.
1: Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Paul Holden with CIBC. Your line is not open.
17: Thanks. Good afternoon. Sort of continue along the line of questioning that that Gabe just had. Um, Maybe as we think about the normalization or at least the lower margin for U.S. group, I calculate that Roughly every fifty basis point move in that margin equates to roughly U.S. twenty million of annual earnings. Am I doing that math correctly?
7: Um, not sure if I can do that math as quickly as you can. <laughs>
17: okay. Okay. Maybe I'll follow up um, after this call to, to get a better sense of that. Um, So the two other questions I had, I guess the first one related to SLC asset management and the the strong flows there, is there any kind of sense you can give us on the pipeline? I assume you're active with current fundraising, so might have uh, some perspective on whether this level of flows can continue or maybe we, you know, step down to a more normalized rate?
8: Paul, this is Steve. Thanks for the question. You know, we are going to see some volatility quarter to quarter because if you think of the fundraisers now with firms like Crescent and Infrared, you know, they're selling uh, new closed-in funds. For instance, in the second quarter, we had the first closing on um, on Crescent's eighth mezzanine fund. Uh, And, you know, we've got another year, and we expect to have two to three more closings on that fund. So that's going to lead to the numbers to fluctuate quarter to quarter. We do have some new funds launching in the second half. Uh, we've got some sizable separate accounts that we're talking about, so it's hard for me to you know this this is a business that will move around, but you know we had a we have a, uh you know an aggressive projection for the year and we're on for flows and we're on track for that so uh, i don't i, I guess it's another way of saying I don't think the first half is an anomaly uh but you know expect to see the quarterly numbers move around a bit.
17: I'm sorry, can you remind me? Did you did you share that uh, that annual target for flows for the year publicly?
8: No, no, we, no. That uh, I don't think we've given that uh, number out. Okay.
17: Fair enough. Um, and then I just want to also ask on the uh, on Asia and sort of following up on some of the comments regarding COVID impacts. Maybe um, Leo, if you don't mind, you can kind of just give a summation of which jurisdictions. Are seeing ongoing lockdowns, at least as of today, and which are uh, less impacted.
14: Good afternoon, Paul. Uh, it's Leo. Thanks. Uh, thanks for your question. Um, you're right to note uh, that uh, there's still quite a bit of uh, movement uh, with COVID uh, in Asia. Uh, in particular, if you look at what happened in Q2, we're seeing a, a strong surge in the Delta variants, um, especially in Southeast Asia, um, which uh, is uh, impacting uh, the, the region. Um, and it's actually quite, uh, quite broad. Um, if you look at Q2, um, you know, really what, uh, and, and now is the start of Q3 in July, uh, you obviously have the very strong wave uh, in India, uh, with uh, not just high cases but also uh, very high mortality at about, you know, 4,000 deaths per day at, at its peak. Um, those numbers have started to come down in India, but we've seen uh, a surge in, uh, in the rest of the region. So more recently, you've seen uh, Malaysia um, uh, start going to a peak. Um, Philippines has been kind of hovering at a constant level for the, the last uh, year, really. Um, but then you're starting to see um, Vietnam have cases and uh, quite a bit of an increase uh, in, in the death rate. Uh, and then in, Indonesia is also uh, at a peak um, uh, of about 2,000 uh, deaths per, per day, which is now higher than, uh, than India currently is. So that, that's affecting broadly Southeast Asia. We've also seen uh, some um, uh, cases in, in a few provinces in China. Uh, and so all the governments are responding with uh, various lockdown measures. So Malaysia has been in a state of emergency, for example. Uh, Vietnam, that had been, you know, completely open. People could travel across uh, the country, uh, is now facing movement restrictions, curfews, and so on. Um, and then you've had um, uh, various escalations in restrictions in, uh, in Indonesia and the Philippines, and then now in, in various areas of China that, uh, that are being affected so it's actually fairly broad. The only place where we haven't seen a, a growth in um, in cases is in Hong Kong, and that's really a result of very strong travel restriction into uh, the market. so um, the the economy is is running pretty well within Hong Kong, but uh, it's very hard to travel in and out. So all of that uh, obviously creates some uncertainty for us um, uh, heading into um, uh, into Q three. Uh, Although, um, you know, we do feel confident about um, our positioning for recovery um, as a result of uh, the the strong um, uh, investments we've made in the business in in distribution uh, and also in digital, enabling our advisors to engage with clients remotely.
17: That's great. That's very helpful. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Mario Mendonca with TD Securities. Your line is now open.
18: Good afternoon. Uh, Kevin, you are inheriting a company with a uh, so called a life insurance company, but it's got a 16% ROE, a percent bike at the holdco, reasonably low leverage. When I, when I look at this, and I think a lot of people on this call would recognize that's not normal for a life insurance company, so when you look at this, um, how do you react to that ROE? Do you, is your reaction simply, well, Bean's made some good calls over the last 10 years, and we're not really a life insurance company anymore, so this is normal? Or do you look at it and say, we could, your company could absorb a large transaction and maybe temporarily uh, live with an ROE that's much lower? Uh,
4: how do you look at it? Is this normal for some now? Like Uh, Thanks, Meryl, for the question. First, you're absolutely right. Dean and the executive team under him have left the extremely strong foundation, the de-risking that was done early on in his tenure to exit some of the uh, higher capital use businesses um, and focus on fee businesses and focus on faster growth jurisdictions like Asia and and the addition of now SLC have positioned us to be very different than just an insurance company. And our ambition is to be one of the world's best insurance and asset management companies and in fact if you added up our asset management businesses including uh grs which is a defined contribution business that in many ways in canada looks like an asset management business and pension risk transfer we're almost half asset management and you know i can see us continuing to grow our our, our earnings uh, across the four pillars i think we've got great growth potential in asia which we've talked about being 15 percent plus I think we've got great, we've got sort of such a leadership position and a strong brand in Canada. I can see Canada growing. We've talked about 6% plus. Um, The the U.S., you've talked a lot about the U.S. on this call, and I think that that growth in the U.S. group benefits business. We've got a real powerhouse in stop loss, and with the additional things like Pinnacle Care to to really extend that and, and the work that Dan and his team are doing on digital. So, you know, Mario, our focus on on Reducing use of capital and, and fee income, not just asset management fee income, but fee income in our insurance businesses around the world. Uh, that focus on on financial discipline, on, on earning our targets, on how we deploy capital. We've deployed capital in a way that tries to build all of our MTOs, right? We're trying to build earnings growth, we're trying to build ROE, we're trying to build um, cash flow and dividends back to our, to our shareholders. And that discipline, you know, I, I've been involved with Dean ever since he took over as uh, CEO. I worked for him in Canada as well. You know, that, that discipline, I like to think I was part of that as well as CFO. So, you know, we're going to maintain that. And, the, and, and not just me, the entire executive team. Dean's comment started with the executive team. So, you know, I, there's, uh, we're, we're, we're uh, focused on making our business stronger and better. The work we've done on digital, uh the work we've done on on which lines of business the four pillars, and we're gonna continue to build on that
18: all right so sixteen percent even higher i guess is not uh unusual then for a company of sunlight's make like there's no reason to expect that r o e to trend back down to thirteen percent, which is where it was for much of sunlight's
4: time as a public company uh, I think our mix than- of i think our mix of business if we continue to to grow, we should be able to grow the r o e as well
18: okay. Let me uh, go to maybe a more detailed question, and it relates to the assumption review that's coming up um, next quarter. I don't believe you've given us any guidance. I don't think it's Sun Life's practice to give us guidance on your assumption review. But let me ask this. uh, Commercial real estate, it's an important part of the asset mix for Sun Life and every life insurance company. Is there, uh, should we be sensitive to the notion that life insurance companies, including Sun Life, have to revisit the asset return assumptions around commercial real estate.
4: Is that a reasonable concern? So, Mario, it's Kevin again. I'll let Kevin Morrissey address that question.
19: Yeah, yeah thanks. thanks for that question, Mario. This is Kevin Morrissey. So we are reviewing a number of assumptions, uh, as normally at the majority of our assumption reviews will be in Q3 this year, similar to previous years. Commercial real estate, real estate assumptions are definitely part of that review. Uh, you know, we do review that assumption every year, Mario, so it, so this is not something uh, that's new for this year. Uh, we look at our experience, so what we've had in the past. We also look at you know, how the markets are changing and, and look at projections for the future as well. So I will note we did have a significant gain in real estate this quarter, which was great to see. So um, I guess the, 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 the short answer to your question is yes, it's certainly part of our review. Um, and uh, you'll you'll see uh, the results of that and, and uh, all the other changes uh, in the next quarter. But there's nothing that we're calling out or highlighting for Q3 other than the the changes that have been announced and approved by the Actual Standards Boards. Uh, that's the the ultimate reinvestment rate and the ultimate credit spreads. And we will be making those updates in Q3 as and uh, we've uh, included estimates in our disclosures on that.
18: Thank you, and Dean. Uh- All the best in your
19: time.
1: Thank you. Our next question comes from a line of Darko Mihalik with RBC Capital Markets. Your line is now open. Hey, thanks for
20: taking my questions. Um, Dean, congrats. All the best. Uh, I have a question. I'm looking specifically at slide uh, 11, and I'm looking at the upper left-hand corner of the individual uh, insurance sales, up 52% year over year. A few questions I wanted to, to poke at uh, on, on this stuff. The, the first is, obviously last year we know there was disruption, um, but what what's the biggest driver of the, the, the sales apart from just, um, you know, now sort of being out there and, and, and capable? Like, has there been any pricing changes with respect to these policies that are being sold.
4: So, Darko, it's Kevin. I think it's best answered by by Pillar. So, uh, I'll turn maybe Jacques first to answer the the Canada growth in, in sales, and then Leo can uh, talk about Asia.
16: Yeah, Darko, this is Jacques. Thanks for the question. And as you point out, of course, the individual insurance sales are up significantly in Canada, 121 million, up 57%. Remember that in Canada, we have two distinct channels. We have uh, Sunlight Financial Distributors, and then the third party, which is high net worth and ultra high net worth. Um, The high net worth is where the growth is the highest at the moment in Q2. And this business can be lumpy, Darko, and in particular, if you put yourself back to the previous quarter in 2020, and, and the, the fact that there was a lot of medical facilities that were closed, and so on, um, we saw we saw lower sales in part because you know while we we announced that we're going to go up to five million without uh, labs, uh, when you get to the ultra high net worth, these are a very significant amounts. So there was, I would say, a kind of a of a build up of the pipeline, and and that has come through nicely this quarter. But I I just want to highlight the fact that those can be lumpy from quarter to quarter. Theo? Yes,
14: good afternoon, Darko, uh, and thanks, uh, Jacques. Um, So there are two parts to your question. The first one is is the increase in sales, and the second one was uh, any pricing changes uh, associated with with the numbers. In the case of Asia, what you're seeing is uh, a strong rebound on uh, Q2 2020, uh sales which were significantly affected by the the start of the pandemic um, and so you know we've um really worked over the last year to um uh drive distribution capacity in a covid environment um some of that has been you know increasing capacity with our partnerships with ACB TP Bank in Vietnam for example but also the the growth of our agency we're up in high uh, single digit uh, rates in terms of agent count over that period uh, so strong, strong capacity growth there and strong rebound um, uh, as well with the digital enablement of all of our distribution. And then the se- second factor is that we, we constantly review our product pricing and our product design. And uh, you're right that uh, over the, the past year we have taken uh, pricing action across uh, multiple parts of our business, uh, notably uh, international would have seen um, some, some price increases, uh, Hong Kong. Uh, Philippines, Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, so quite broad-based um, as well.
20: Okay, uh, that, that's helpful. So pricing has gone up, and despite the fact that pricing has gone up, we're seeing significant improvement in sales. And I guess the question leads to the next obvious one, which is, has underwriting changed? And ultimately what I'm interested in knowing And Kevin Strain, I guess this is the question for you, is as you inherit this company, how do I know that the $473 million of sales is a good thing in the sense that we're now living with COVID-19, it's here forever, and we could end up having higher mortality later on that you're gonna pay for. So, you know, has underwriting changed? Are you asking people if they're vaccinated? Are you changing pricing because of vaccination rates? Most actuaries that I talk to tell me it's too early to know much about COVID-19, but we're plowing ahead with a lot of sales anyway. So, you know, I, I guess the, ultimately the question is, Kevin, why are you comfortable with so much life insurance sales being put out there, uh, and yet we don't know enough about COVID-19 and all of its variants and the possible impacts later on uh, could be very bad for your business?
4: I'll let uh, i 'll let Kevin Morrissey jump in on this as well Darko but you're, you're aware we use we do use significant amount of reinsurance in this business as well so we uh, we, we do uh, uh, work with the reinsurers in terms of how we look at underwriting how we look at risk how we think about risk. Uh, Kevin can talk a little bit more about that but there there's a number of factors that you were seeing in the quarter that i that I just want to summarize again right like remember the previous quarter was really the first quarter of of covid and and it was hard for agents to get out, and they hadn't yet pivoted to the new tools that were introduced. In fact, in a lot of the jurisdictions, um, licensing wasn't approved yet for electronic, sig- or so not licensing. I should say, electronic signatures weren't yet approved yet by the by the regulator. So you had a you've had a a very sh- big shift in in the quarter over quarter, right? Q2 last year, uh, newly into COVID. Q2 this year. Uh, starting to come out of COVID in some jurisdictions, with uh, with improved tools and uh, and also we've been investing in distribution during the pandemic. And Leo talked about the addition of ACB and uh, and some of those types of things. So I, I think there's a a combination of things. But on the the risk side, you know I would just again point out you've seen our mortality experience coming through COVID. Um, we've talked about. Um, the use of uh, more analytics, uh, more data, um, different ways of thinking about risk, and we've done that in partnership often with reinsurers. So I don't know, Kevin Morrissey, if you wanted to add anything on mortality risks?
19: Yes, uh, thanks, Kevin. So, Darko, I, maybe just add a bit to that. So we are paying, of course, very close attention to the pandemic and how it progresses in all the different geographies. So we're paying close attention to the risks, the trends, with focus on the underwriting and, and you know our pricing will be quite responsive as well but your question is a good one about the risk for writing now and I think I would point to our, our really the benefit of diversification across our product portfolios we, we really benefit from geographic diversification so we sell in a number of different markets and as you can see in the ebbs and flows of the pandemic across the world you know we've, we've certainly had that balance out with our global business profile also, the insurance and annuity diversification. So we're a big writer of paid annuities, which, uh, which have the opposite exposure uh, as a result of the pandemic. And we've certainly seen that in our results as well, that great diversification across the different product types. So I think that, that broad diversification across those dimensions help us feel really good about the risk we're writing today.
20: Kevin, is it is it fair to say that for every dollar of mortality risk you put on, you're putting on a dollar of a new uh, of longevity risk, or or is it not quite that balanced?
19: It's not quite exactly balanced, but I will tell you, we have a longer-term strategy to to have that risk profile quite well balanced, and we're looking at getting that that balance across the enterprise, but also across different jurisdictions as well. So it's you know it's very much in our minds to to have that longer-term balance in place.
20: Great, thank you.
1: Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Nigel D'Souza with Veritas Investment Research. Your line is now open.
21: Uh, Good afternoon, thank you for for taking my question. I'll try to keep it uh, brief since we're over time here. I wanted to follow up on uh, individual insurance sales uh, in Asia and there's a fair bit of color already provided on this, but when I look at it on a sequential basis, Uh, your individual insurance sales are down across, um, you know, essentially all the regions except for Vietnam. And I'm trying to understand how much of that is just quarter uh, noise, like quarter volatility uh, and seasonality, and how much of that is related to COVID-19 and, you know, recent uh, mobility restrictions and and lockdowns. You know, Leo mentioned that you haven't seen case counts rise in Hong Kong, but uh, individual insurance sales also down sequentially, there and I know it's a bit, you know, hard to predict, but do you have a sense of at least in the third quarter how how your individual insurance sales in Asia are trending? And uh, do you think it's going to drift lower in the short term with uh, some mobility restrictions that are being rolled?
4: Nigel, it's Kevin. Uh, hi, Nigel. Uh, okay, go ahead. Go ahead, Leo. Sorry.
14: Okay. Hi, Nigel. It's uh, Leo. Thank you for your question. Uh, Regarding the first part of your question around sequential sales, um, you're right that in uh, local markets uh, on a sequential basis, um, the markets were down other than for Vietnam. Uh, And there's really two factors that are at play here. The first one is um, that, as you noted, uh, Southeast Asia uh, really saw a resurgence in, uh, in COVID cases and, in particular, the Delta variant and all of that in impacted sales across the region. And then the, the other factor that you're seeing is India sales uh, are down, and that is a seasonal um, pattern. Um, uh, some of that is also the, the COVID cases. In, in India, as you know, there was a strong wave, but some of that is seasonality in that our India business has a fiscal year ending um, at the end of March, and uh, as a result, um, they're they're our, our Q1, but their Q4 is their strongest quarter of the year every year. So there's some seasonality in India and then an overlay of uh, the impact of uh, the most recent COVID waves uh, across the other markets. Uh, in terms of, you know, sales going forward, it is a little bit unpredictable at this point in time in that we don't quite know um, where uh, things are going with um, uh, the handling of uh, the increase in cases across the region. Um, you know, as I discussed a little bit earlier, uh, we are currently at um, <clears throat> peak levels of uh, COVID cases and COVID deaths uh, in, um, in in the broad population in markets like Indonesia uh, and Malaysia. Um, and, you know, in those types of situations, you've got countries with very low vaccination rates at this point in time. The governments are taking uh, some quite strong actions in terms of uh, movement restriction uh, they are, for example, um, uh, closing bank branches, which obviously affects our bank assurance business uh, in places like Malaysia and, and Vietnam, notably. So, so we do see uh, some some uncertainty there in terms of the market. Um, and then, you know, offsetting that is um, uh, what I talked about earlier, which is you know increased distribution capacity and strong enablement of our advisors uh, for non-face-to-face uh, and uh, digital sales, which uh, should dampen uh, some of that impact. Uh, but nonetheless, um, uh, th- there is uh, material uncertainty there, uh, Nigel.
21: Okay, thanks, that's really useful color. And if I could just quickly follow up on another point brought up earlier uh, on you know, mortality versus longevity. Um, do you have any color on the geographic breakdown of, of that mix exposure, would it be fair to say that uh, the longevity offset is more prevalent in North America and, and less uh, less prevalent or less substantial in Asia? Is that the right way to think about it, or, or how should we think about it?
19: No, Joe, it's Kevin Morrison. Maybe I'll, I'll take that one. Uh, I, I think when if, when you're looking at that, that mix of business, uh, predominantly the the longevity risk that we're writing would be in in Canada today. We also have quite a large business in the U.K., uh, so that would be kind of a predominantly where you'd see the, the longevity exposures on our books today.
21: Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Our last question comes from the line of Scott Chan with Canaccord Genuity. Your line is now open.
6: Yeah, thanks for sneaking me in. And, and Dean, congrats on uh, all your achievements at Sun Life and, and best of luck in, in retirement. Um, I just have one follow-up question for Mike at MFS. Uh, you talked about the redemptions in the quarter, but I think what's more maybe concerning is the gross inflows that we see. Um, you know, I saw a total in the quarter. Uh, it was down 20% percent quarter over quarter and 25% year-over-year on what was a very strong Q2 flows globally, from what we can tell. Um, is it? I also noticed your median-term fund performance slipped a little bit, but I just wanted to see any color on uh, on, on some of the gross flows um, that uh, that seemed very suppressed this quarter.
12: Hey, Scott. Uh, thanks for the question, uh, it's Mike. Uh, I think – Year-over-year year, comparisons are a little tough in that last year was such an outsized year. You know, we had sales up 40% last year. There was incredible movement in the second quarter, um, sort of the opposite of what I was talking about earlier, where at market highs, money comes out of equities into fixed income. It sort of was the opposite last year. We saw money come out of fixed into equity, and we were well-positioned for that. So I think last year's a tough year to comp off of. When you look at Q2 versus Q1, um, and you look at active fund sales in the U.S. industry this year. You know our flows were in line with what happened in the active industry. So the active industry saw flows come down in two Q from two one, uh, and I think some of that is related to market being at highs and people not allocating as market continues to go up. Interest rates are relatively low. I think people are sitting on their hands some. Um, so our flows look very similar. If you look at U.S. retail flows, very similar to what happened in the industry Q two versus Q one. Okay. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. We have no further questions at this time. And I will turn thanks to Mr. Bidden for closing remarks.
2: I would like to thank all of our participants today, and if there are any additional questions, we will be available after the call. Should you wish to listen to the rebroadcast, it will be available on our website by tomorrow morning. Before I end the call, I would also like to congratulate Dean on his successful tenure at Sun Life we wish you all the best in your retirement. Thank you, and have a good day.
1: This concludes today's
0: conference call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card.